So today we continue our Christmas series, and we're answering the question, uh, what child is this? And I just want to thank uh, our shepherd, David, for drawing our attention to the truth that this child is the world-saving baby. Because if, if he's not the world-saving baby, then there's, there'd be no reason for us to be here today. There'd be no reason for any kind of Christmas celebration, any kind of uh, joy. At Christmas we celebrate that God did the unthinkable, the incredible, the astonishing, that the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God was born in a stable as a baby boy. At Christmas we celebrate the incarnation, the, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. But the celebration of His coming would be pointless without embracing the reason He came. If God, out of some kind of mysterious curiosity, chose to leave heaven uh, to spend time on earth as a human, yes, that would be amazing, but it wouldn't be cause for joy for us. It wouldn't be cause for celebration. It really wouldn't affect us at all. But if, as the shepherd said this morning, this child, being fully God and fully man, became this world-saving baby who grew into the world-saving man, then we have every reason to celebrate this morning. And so today we're going to see that this child, uh, who is God with us, that's what we looked at two weeks ago, fully God, and God as one of us, what we looked at last week, fully human, is also uh, God for us. He is our Savior. And if you come here today with doubts about God being for you, if you have doubts about God's love and care and concern for you, it's my prayer that as we look at His Word this morning, that you, like the shepherd, will wake up. Wake up to the reality of who this child truly is that you'll be feel, filled with the, the hope and the peace and the love and the joy that Jesus brings, that you'll put your faith in and give your life to the One who was born to be your Savior. We find the record of His birth in, in Luke chapter 2. Uh, verses 1-7 through seven talk about his, his actual birth. But, but it's what happens immediately after the birth that we'll focus on today. Join me in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 where we find the, the angel's announcement to the shepherds. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. On that same night, in that same region that Jesus was born, in, in Bethlehem, there were shepherds watching their sheep. Just regular, uh, working class, probably didn't have a southern accent, shepherds just doing their jobs. Maybe a, 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 a southern Israel accent, I don't know. And as the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, uh, they were filled with great fear. Again, as we've seen before, the appearance of the angel of an angel brings this immediate fear. And I can imagine when the glory of the Lord shines around them, the shepherds must have been uh, terrified. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
Did you know that the word angel means uh, messenger? One of the primary functions uh, of God's angels is to deliver uh, God's messages, messages from God. And in this case, the angel's message is good news. It's gospel. It's what gospel means, good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. And what is that news? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are some important uh, things here we learn about Jesus from this sentence. First, the angel says to the shepherds, For unto you is born. The one who is born is for you. He came for you, unto you. The angel had just said that, that his good news that he brought is of great joy for all people. And now he says, that means you, uh, you lowly shepherd. Shepherding was not the high class job of the day. This child came to shepherds. And he came to kings. He came for kings. He came for the rich and the poor. He came for servants and masters. He came for the black and the white and every skin tone in between. This child came for every tribe and tongue and language and people. This child came for you and he came for me. This child is God for us. And what does he do for us? That's the second thing we learn. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. It's going to be really the, the main focus today. This child who was born in the city of David, born in Bethlehem, just over the hill from where the shepherds were, is the Savior. This child who is for you is for you because he, he came to save you. And how can he do that? What gives him the right, the authority, the ability to be the Savior? That's the third thing we learn about the child. He is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek, uh, in Greek, which means uh, anointed, uh, which in Hebrew is Messiah. This child is the promised Messiah, the, the promised Savior of his people. And he is Lord. He is God. God himself has come into our world to bring salvation. That's the announcement the shepherds bring. I mean, the angels bring to the shepherds. That's the good news of great joy that, that is for all people. That's what gives Christmas its meaning. That Jesus is our Savior. Born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's why God, who is for us, sent His Son into our world. I want us to see that, that, and this is our first point under that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus' mission is salvation. We see this truth all over uh, the Bible even, through prophecy and then in the Gospels and then as Paul and others explain it. But in Luke 19.10, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, Jesus speaking, He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thirteen words that give us Jesus's, the heart of Jesus' mission. He, the Son of Man, came that, that, that He might seek and save the lost. His mission begins with seeking. The word seeking is not a casual looking for something. Uh, I'm, I'm seeking something in the refrigerator to eat. That's not what he's talking about. The word refers to a deliberate search. It involves taking the initiative. 
striving to find what you're looking for. It implies that the seeker values what he's seeking. In Luke chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus illustrates uh, the kind of seeking he's talking about. He says, this is a, a, a parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The silver coin was valuable to the woman, uh, so she searched for it until it was found. Have you ever lost something that you truly valued? I remember when my uh, son Michael was a toddler. Christina, his mother, and I lost him all the time. But it wasn't our fault. He was a wanderer. It's hard when he's sitting over there now at 26 years of age. I remember one time at church camp. Michael was probably around two years old. Uh, We turned around, and as usual, he was gone. We started looking for him. You know, there are bears in them woods, so we were a little nervous. We started looking for him, and eventually everyone in the camp was seeking Michael. And just as we started to really panic, someone found him sitting under some stairs of one of the cabins, just playing in the dirt. He could hear everyone calling his name. He hadn't left, but he just didn't want to come out. My point is, Michael was was very valuable. And so we took the initiative to diligently seek after him. And God is for us, and he values us. So he sent Jesus to seek after us. We need to understand that it's God who takes the initiative. It's God who seeks. It left to our own devices, we would do nothing. We would never, you know that bumper sticker, I found it. No, you didn't. Jesus found you. If Jesus did not seek us out, we on our own would never come to him. And why does he seek? It's not just a, a game of hide and seek he's playing. Uh, once we're found, once you're found, it's, it's not over. Jesus doesn't just seek for seeking's sake. Jesus seeks for the purpose of of saving. He is our Savior. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save. Saving is the heart of Jesus' mission. Now we'll focus on what it means that Jesus saves saves us shortly. But first, I want us to understand uh, that we need a Savior, our need for a Savior. Why do we need saving? Because we're lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save us. The lost. Have you ever been lost? Being lost means uh, two things, really. It means you're not where you're supposed to be, and you don't have any idea of how to get where you're supposed to be. You're lost. I've been lost on several occasions, but on one occasion, uh, I was totally lost. For those who don't know, my wife and I were missionaries in Thailand. And our first Christmas there, we lived in a, a city uh, called Lopuri. It's about two hours north of Bangkok. Now, before we left the U.S., I'd gotten the, uh, an international driver's license. So that first Christmas, I volunteered to drive a, a group of new missionaries to Bangkok so we could uh, shop for Christmas presents. I got directions. This is before uh, GPSs or map questing or any of that. I got directions to, to, the, to a mall in Bangkok. And we got in the van, and I followed the directions and arrived 
at the mall. Drove straight there. We did our shopping, and when it was time to leave, I started to head back in the van the same way I'd came. But what I didn't realize is that in Bangkok, you need to get directions both ways. There are so many one-way streets that you, you, you can't get back the way you came. So I got totally lost. I couldn't read the signs because I had, hadn't learned to read Thai yet. And I couldn't stop and ask for directions because I couldn't speak Thai yet. And to tell the truth, it was such a traumatic experience, I can't even remember how we ever got back to Lopuri. I have, I have the memory of being lost. I have no memory of how we got back. I know it took a long time, and I know there was a lot of prayer going on in that van. Because for the longest time, we were where we weren't supposed to be, and we didn't know how to get where we were supposed to be. We got lost in this physical world of ours. And that really illustrates what happens to us spiritually. Since Adam and Eve, uh, since they first disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, humanity, we as a people have been lost spiritually. Remember the two-part definition of being lost. First, you're not where you're supposed to be. We were created in God's image. We were created to be in a relationship of love with God. And so anyone who's not in relationship with God is by definition lost. They're not where they're supposed to be. And second, they don't know where they're supposed to be. Most, mo- for the most part, we don't even know we're lost. We don't know we're supposed to be in relationship with God. And even if we did, we don't know how to get there. Now, when someone is physically lost, they need two things. They need information and they need transportation. Information, uh, like a map or, or GPS or someone telling them directions. And transportation, a vehicle, a way, uh, some sort of transportation to get where you're supposed to be. And the same thing is true when you're lost spiritually. We need information and we need transportation. God, God's Word provides the information we need. It gives us uh, directions. It gives us a roadmap or uh, the GPS coordinates to where uh, a relationship with God is. But we also need transportation. We need a way to get there. The Bible gives directions. It tells us that Jesus Christ Himself is the only way to relationship with the Father. Jesus said it Himself, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Sort of that. It's sort of a one-way street. There's only one way to get where you're supposed to be. And it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only transportation to the Father, to relationship with God. We have no ability to get there ourselves. Think of it this way. Suppose you're hiking in the snow. You lose your way. You can't find the path. It's cold and it's late and it's getting dark. Then to make matters worse, you fall in a hole and you break your leg. You don't know where you are. And even if you did, you have no ability to get where you're supposed to be. You need someone to rescue you. Your only hope is a Savior. And that's a picture of of how lost we are before Jesus seeks us out. 
we are figuratively lost in a hole with a broken leg with no ability to save ourselves. Because of Adam's sin, humanity, we are, we're all born in this state of lostness. We're born in sin. We're born uh, with a sin nature. And we prove that we are born with a sin nature every day by our actions, by our deeds. We're not where we're supposed to be. Because of sin, we're not in relationship with God and we have no ability to get there on our own. We are lost. So we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. And Jesus was born to save us. He comes to the lost. He seeks us out. And Jesus saves us from our sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle writes, You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. John says that Jesus appeared. Uh, he was born into our world. Why? To take away sins. The Greek word for sin is harmatia. It originally means meant to, to miss the mark, to fail, to fall short, to not measure up to the standard. And in the New Testament, this word uh, is used for any act that's contrary to the commands of God. To miss God's mark of holy perfection. John says that Jesus appeared to take away sins. Jesus will take away all of our failures our, our, to miss God's mark of holy perfection. Jesus will save us from our sins. Now you might think, uh, you might ask, why do we need saving from our sins? What's the problem? Because the Bible, the roadmap, teaches us there are grave and eternal consequences for sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, for the wages, I mean simple, for the wages of sin is death. The wages, what you earn, what I earn, what I deserve, what you deserve for our sin is death. Death here refers not only to physical death, but to eternal death. The Bible teaches that our sin earns eternal separation. We'll never be found. We'll never be in that right relationship with God. Eternal separation from God. Therefore, to avoid these terrible consequences, our sin must be dealt with. It must be taken care of. We must be saved from our sin. And thanks be to God that Jesus Christ was born to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to rescue those who will trust in Him to deliver them from their sin and bring them into relationship with God. The problem, however, is that most people don't believe they're lost in their sin. Oh, most would acknowledge that, that they aren't perfect, that, that I make mistakes, faux pas. Some might, meet, might even use the word sin. Some might even admit, yeah, I, I sin. But their sin isn't that bad, at least in their mind. There are others who are, who are much worse than me. Most people believe that they're basically a good person. And, and heaven is created for good persons. And hell is for, for bad persons like, like Hitler or the, the Las Vegas shooter. So I might do some wrong things, but, I, but I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't need a Savior. The problem is, we've gotten the idea that God is in the basis of comparing us with one, of a, one another. And as long as there are really bad people, as long as there are Hitlers and murderers and rapists, we'll always be able to find someone that we're better than. 
in college at a class called uh, Number Theory. Sounds simple enough, right? It was by far the, the most difficult class I've ever had. Every test I took, I scored in the, the 30s or the 40s out of, out of 100. And normally, if you know anything about grading, that would be a, a solid F, right? But I got a B- minus in the class. How? Because the professor graded on a curve. He had to. Otherwise, almost everyone would have failed. And we somehow believe that, that God grades on a curve. As long as I'm better than some or, or most people, God will have to let me into heaven on my own merits. But I beg you, I, I, I beg if that is your way of thinking in any way, get it out of your head. God does not, will not, never has graded on a curve. Remember, for the wages of sin is death. Any failure to meet God's holy standard results in eternal death. Eternal separation from God. So what hope do we have? It's clear we have no hope in ourselves because we're lost in our sin. We are in the hole with a broken leg. But there is hope. Hope that arrived uh, over 2,000 years ago. John says, Jesus appeared to take away sins. Jesus came to save us from sin and death. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. As John said, in Him is no sin. And then He, on the cross, He, he died in our place. He became our sacrifice, a, a substitutionary sacrifice. He substituted Himself for us. He paid our debt. Our sin did result in death. It resulted in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took our place. He took our sin upon Himself. He paid the price for our sin. And, and then he, he gave us, He credited to us, His righteousness. Jesus came to seek and save the lost from their sin by crediting to them His righteousness, by dying in their place. But He didn't stop there. He not only saves us from our sin, but Jesus saves us to eternal life. Romans 6.23, again, the full verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in 1 John 1.9 we read, In this the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Yes, Jesus saves us from sin and death and hell, but that's just the beginning. There's so much more. He saves us from death to life, to a loving relationship with God. He takes us where we're supposed to be. He takes us out of lostness and, and transports us into relationship with God for all eternity. Remember when you were, uh, remember what, back in the, the other illustration, when you were lost in the snow and you fell in the hole and you broke your leg? Now suppose you're rescued, you're saved. Someone came along and, and gets you out of the hole. Now suppose your Savior then, then takes you to His home and cares for your wombs, nursing you back to health. He saves you from, from death. But further suppose He then adopts you into His family. That's the salvation that Jesus came to provide. 
He not only rescues us from our sin, sinful, death-filled holes, He then takes, He then in love takes us into His home. He makes us part of His family. The Apostle Paul makes this really clear. Ephesians 1.5 He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. It's God's will to make us sons and daughters. God is pleased to enter into a, a loving relationship with each one of us. Jesus said in John uh, 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He saves us from our sin. We don't perish. And then He saves us too eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God loved the world enough to send His Son, His only Son, to be born in a manger, a feeding trough, to live a life of love and obedience, service and sacrifice, and ultimately to sacrifice His life on the cross. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, The world was already condemned, by the way. Jesus came to save those who believe from our condemnation brought on by sin and save us to eternal life in His presence. God is for us. Even though we're lost in our sinful rebellion against Him, He in love provided us with what we need for salvation. He, through His Word, even today, has given us the information, the roadmap, the GPS coordinates to follow. And most importantly, He's given us the transportation we need. He's given us the way, the truth, and the life. He's given us Jesus Christ that we might enter into, that we might be found, that we might be found and enter into this loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. God has given us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the question is, how, you, how will you respond to this Savior? There must be response from all of us. Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say, Christ is a Savior. It's quite another thing to say, He is my Savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. Each of us must decide what we will do with God's offer of salvation. Each of us must decide what we will do with Jesus Christ, the Savior. And I believe today I just want to uh, highlight three responses that we can have. First, you can rejoice in your Savior. This is Advent and we're celebrating joy. I don't know why our joy is not lit up. Just imagine the light there. You can rejoice in the Savior. For those who've already trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you've given your life to Him, if, you've, if He's found you, if He sought you out and found you and brought you into relationship with God, rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ was born to seek and to save the lost. That you were once lost, but Jesus has saved you from your sin. He saved you from eternal death. He saved you from separation from God. He saved you from eternal hell. And rejoice that He saved you to eternal life. To eternal, uh, an eternal loving relationship in His kingdom, in His presence. 
And I would encourage you this morning, those of, of you, those of us who've trusted in Christ, who can rejoice that He's our Savior, to make that rejoicing known uh, to the world. Like the angel, be a messenger for God. Rejoice in such a way that the people in your life know that Jesus Christ saved you from your sin. Know uh, that people know and you're rejoicing in the, the fact that you're saved to eternal life. Rejoice in such a way that you're communicating the good news of great joy to those who are still lost. So that's the first way to respond. Rejoice in your Savior. The second way to respond is you, you can reject the Savior. I don't recommend this response, but you can. That option is open to you. John 1.11, the apostles the apostle wrote these words about Jesus. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. His own people rejected him. In, the, in this context, John is speaking of the Jewish people. Jesus came to them. He came as one of them. He came as Christ, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. But as a people, not every one of them, obviously, but as a people, they didn't receive him. They rejected him. They were okay with him for a while. They actually had hope that he was this Messiah that they were waiting for when he was feeding thousands and doing miracles. But when he made claims on their lives, when he called for repentance, when he made it clear that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, but a, a, a kingdom of the heart, a kingdom of heaven, when he said that trusting in him was the only way to salvation, when he said, I am equating himself with God. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. And, and, and today, most people continue in, in, that, in those footsteps. They reject him. Some proactively reject him. They, they say they don't believe. They don't believe who he is. They don't believe what he did. But others reject him uh, apathetically. They procrastinate deciding about Jesus. They procrastinate the most important decision of their eternal life. And I just want to, uh, us to know that procrastination, apathy about Jesus Christ is rejection of Jesus Christ. No decision is a decision. We can reject Jesus proactively or apathetically, but in either case, you remain lost in your sin, destined for eternal death. You remain in that hole. So what's the alternative? Well, as you might have guessed, the final response is you can receive the Savior. John says in the following verse, verse 11, they didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, adopted into God's family. What does it mean to receive him? To receive Jesus Christ, John says, it means to believe in his name. So what's his name? His name is Jesus. We learned this a couple weeks ago. The angel said to Joseph, and his name shall be Jesus. Jesus, from the Hebrew Joshua, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. To believe, his, to believe him means to believe that he is, he and he alone is your Savior. The word believe is more than just intellectual understanding. The word believe means to entrust, to put your trust in, to have faith in. Now, faith is not always 
easy to understand. So let me give this uh, little illustration. True story, I believe. In 1958, uh, America's first commercial jet air service began with the flight of the Boeing 707. A month after the first flight, uh, a traveler on a piston engine, uh, propeller-driven DC-6 airliner struck up a conversation with a fellow passenger. The passenger happened to be a Boeing engineer. The traveler asked the engineer about this new jet aircraft. The engineer was very wildly enthusiastic about this new and improved way to travel. He began speaking at length about the extensive testing Boeing had done on on the jet engine before bringing it into commercial service. He recounted Boeing's experience with engines from the B-17 to the B-52. When his traveling companion asked him if he himself had yet flown on the new 707 jet airliner, the engineer replied, I think I'll wait until it's been in service for a while. Even enthusiastic talking about our faith doesn't mean much if we aren't also willing to put our lives where our mouth is. True belief, true faith gets on the plane. We say we believe, but are we willing to board the plane? We may believe in our heads that Jesus is is the Savior, We may even say how great He is. We may even extol His virtues, His teachings, His miracles. But until we're willing to entrust our lives to Him, we're still rejecting Him. He doesn't call us to just be a cheerleader for Him. He calls us to live for Him, to give our lives to Him, to trust in Him. Jesus calls for faith that says, I trust you with every aspect, every detail of my life. I give myself completely to you. I trust you not only to save me from sin and death, but I trust you to love me and guide me into this new and eternal life that you've given me. So receiving Christ means that He saves you from your sin. And He becomes the Lord, the leader of your new life. And so as we close this morning, I want to begin... uh, Usually I close in prayer. I'm going to begin with a, just a time of silence, give you a, a time to contemplate these responses, a time to consider how should I respond to Jesus Christ. Those who've trusted in Him, uh, this is your time for rejoicing. Rejoicing in your heart, rejoicing in your salvation, rejoicing in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the good news of great joy that God is for you, that Jesus has saved you. But for those who've yet to put their faith in Christ, this is a time of decision. And remember, no decision is a decision. Will you continue to reject Him? Or will you admit your lostness, admit your sin, your need for a Savior, and receive Him? And this takes faith. Believing that Jesus is who He claimed to be. Believing He is Emmanuel, God with us. Believing that He lived a sinless life, believing that He went to the cross for you to die in your place, to die for your sins and trusting Him for that. That He saved you from your sins and believing that He saved you to eternal life. 
entering into that loving relationship that He provides. Believing that God, by sending His Son to die in your place, is for you. Will you receive Christ today? Join me in, in just a time of silent prayer as each we each individually respond to, to 